And now, we will go down to the slave quarters, we two. And I will watch while you, with your own hands, start a podcast with all the women in the pleasure wing. Uncle! There will be other women, Fade. But I have said that you do not make a mistake casually with me. Uncle, you You said- will accept your punishment and learn something from it. You will not refuse. Podcasting is punishment. He's so right. <laughs> oh, is that too honest of us? <laughs> Welcome to Gamja Bar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name's Leo. And Leo, yes. the end is in sight! We are almost there. It's, it's oh crazy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't think we'd make it. <laughs> Again. And yet, here we are. Thought we'd Near the quit. finish line. Halfway through episode two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Book club number six, folks. Yeah. We are almost through this book. What an incredible journey it has been so far. What a blast, frankly, yeah. it's been to deep dive into the pages of this novel that you and I have read and reread, but to do it so in depth, to take it a hundred pages at a time in these episodes. And to break it down in a way that neither of us really has and to have these conversations. I don't know about you, Leo. It has been a treat for me and has genuinely increased my appreciation for this incredible story. Oh, absolutely agree. I'm having an absolute blast. And again, holding ourselves accountable, being like, oh, God, I've got to talk about this. (laughs) I can't just read and enjoy. I have to, like, you know, summarize what happened and think about all the little bits that are hidden it's it's been fun. Yeah, I'm starting to really appreciate all of those book reports I was forced to write back in grade school. <laughs> Finally, that scale has come in handy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's get some housekeeping out of the way. Right. Before we jump into today's reading, all of our book club episodes thus far have been spoiler free, and today is no different. Right. We will not be talking about anything beyond the pages covered thus far. But this is a book club, y'all. And although we are saving some of the messages that we've gotten in the last week or two for a future episode, because we just need to keep this episode manageable in length, (laughs) we do still want to hear from you. Don't let this episode be a precedent setter. Email us at gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We're always happy to hear from you. And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts especially after today's episode, because we just cover some incredible, incredible moments. It's mm-hmm. it's a little wild. Yeah, definitely the best place to get in touch with us. Alrighty, with that housekeeping out of the way, let's jump right into today's reading. Today's episode will be covering pages 501 to 603 in the paperback copy. So as always, we're going to start with a quote-unquote quick summary. We always say quick, and then it's like 
50 minutes long. Regardless, yeah. <laughs> we're going to start today's episode with a summary of these chapters and then jump into our two really big takeaways and then get into some really deep cut spice morsels. Some of the tiny lore tidbits mm-hmm. that you might miss on your first, second, or even 15th read of this book. So this section of reading actually carries us gloriously into the first pages of the final book, Divider of Dune, which is, of course, book three, Prophet, which Mm -hmm. is exciting. Again, Dune was originally serialized in pieces. You know, Frank Herbert wrote it in chunks before it was finally kind of clumped into a single sellable book, which is why there are these dividers, right? Remember earlier we had that Muad'Dib divider right after Paul was tripping in that tent. So we are we're there. We're into the final arc of the story. Yeah, exactly. An arc is the perfect word. I was going to say just that you can think of these as sort of the three main arcs of this first novel. So today we'll be finishing up arc two and actually touching a little bit into arc three. So let's get into the summary. Chapter 34, a thick one. We begin (laughs) this chapter with Jessica still at the Cave of Ridges. And she's keeping herself busy by trying to basically learn as much as she can about the Fremen while also being a mom and worrying about Paul, who she is noticing is getting uncomfortably cozy with that young Fremen girl, Johnny. What's going on there? She's wonderful, though. (laughs) We love her. (laughs) She is. She's the best. Now, if you recall, in the previous book club, we talked about this incredible duel between Paul and Jameis. And here we learn that Jameis's water is being reclaimed and Paul will be given that water in exchange for the sweat and uh, other moisture that he might have <laughs> lost during that Amtal duel. Mm, I know <laughs> if I was in a naked knife fight with some dude, I'd be losing a lot of moisture. That wasn't sweat. for sure. <laughs> right. You need P. to get that We're back. We're making pee jokes here. <laughs> this is how low we have fallen. <laughs> we started here. I mean, let's not <laughs> pretend. That's so true. Um, <laughs> now, understandably, Paul is very hesitant to take this dead guy juice, which is apparently what we're calling it. I can't believe you wrote that in the script and it, made me say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, understandably hesitant to take this dead guy juice. Right. But Jessica is kind of like, nudge, nudge, kiddo. You don't insult these people. This is an honor that they're bestowing upon you. You won this fight. You won this water. Accept it. And thus, he does. The scene then transitions into Jameis's funeral, which is actually a very beautiful part of the book. And on a first read, I kind of brushed this aside, like, oh, yep, funeral scene, whatever. On subsequent rereads, this really hits you when you understand Fremen culture and and this is something we're going to touch on in our takeaways later. Now, the basic premise of this funeral rite or this funeral ritual is one part dealing with his belongings, basically meeting them out to the people that were closest to him or his next of kin, and another part placating the shade of Jameis, making sure that he makes it to the afterlife happily and in good spirits, I suppose. <laughs> right. So some of his belongings are claimed by Stilgar as the name of this tribe, as the leader. Jameis's widow 
get some other belongings. The guards of the tribe get some more. And Paul, as victor of that fight, also gets some of Jameis's belongings. Right. Now, one at a time, as these people come forth and claim these belongings for themselves, they rise and say the words, I was a friend of Jameis, which is really beautiful when you imagine a whole group collected and repeating that over and over and over again. In addition to saying these words, each person, when they rise, also shares a personal memory of Jameis. Now, during this funeral, everyone like keeps looking at Paul because Paul is just sitting there quietly watching all of this happen. And it turns out they expect him to also rise and share a memory of Jameis and then take one of the belongings, considering he is the person that took Jameis's life and is responsible for this whole thing. He musters his courage. He stands up and he says, quote, I was a friend of Jameis. Jameis taught me that when you kill, you pay for it. I wish I'd known Jameis better. End quote. Ah. Heartbreaking. Now, of course, Paul's touching quote here not only brings tears to our eyes, Leo, but to his own eyes as well, because he tears up as he walks forward and he's swept up in this funeral scene and takes that balisette from Jameis's belongings. And the Fremen are astounded. The group starts to whisper and people start saying, he's given water to the dead. He's bestowed this yeah. incredible honor upon Jameis's shade. And what, what a striking thought to pause and think here for a second, that crying and tears yeah. in Fremen culture is considered a waste of water, a waste of your body's moisture. Again, just speaks to just how critically important water is, how water is life and death, and how it dictates every single part of Fremen life in the desert. I mean, they even reach out and touch it. Like, they're literally so in awe of him crying. They're like, I touched his tears. Holy shit, that was crazy. Yeah. I can't believe there's water. <laughs> like, it's it really is very clear to us in this scene how unprecedented this is. Yeah, incredible. Uh, another insight into their culture. Now, the funeral scene sort of wraps up here, and the Fremen Watermasters and Stilgar lead the funeral party down through a series of sort of moisture barriers into this vast underground cave. And in this massive underground cavern, there is this basically lake of water. An enormous amount of water has been collected here underground by the Fremen. And Stilgar says something here that is just absolutely bonkers. Yeah. He says to Jessica, quote, we have more than 38 million decaliters here, walled off from the little makers, hidden and preserved. And then later he continues and says, we have thousands of such caches, end quote. Insane. Insane. And for the folks who don't know what decaliters and liters are, like us, frankly, we had to Google. Yep. We had to Google this. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh-huh. We did, we did it again. We did a little bit of math and a little bit of Googling here. Let's put that in mm -hmm. context. One decaliter is 10 liters, and that equals about 2.6 gallons. So Stilgar just casually to Jessica 
just mentioned that this lake or this pool contains over 100 million gallons of water and that this is just one of thousands of caches. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. This is when you suddenly realize that the dream of a green Arrakis, something we talked a lot about in the previous book club episode, is maybe not such a far-fetched dream because holy shit, they are collecting water and enough water to maybe make this happen, to maybe change Arrakis forever. It's a huge revelation. Now, during this whole lake scene where Stilgar is flexing on how much H2O they got, Paul is distracted by his continuing visions of this jihad on the horizon, these Atreides banners flowing over untold violence and bloodshed across the galaxy in his name. Right. And he gets the sense right here in this very cave, surrounded by this funeral party, that in order to stop this jihad from happening, he's sort of reached the point where he'd have to wipe out everyone in this cave, including himself and his mother, and then just maybe the future would change enough to stop this jihad from happening. We've sort of reached this event horizon where even his death would potentially not stop religious fanatics from using his legend and his name, Muad'Dib, to rage this bloodshed across the galaxy. Once we leave the cavern with the underground lake, Paul tunes the balisette, and to Jessica's utter dismay as a mother, this girl <laughs> Chani that's getting a little too cozy with her boy requests that Paul sing a song. And... Without hesitation, our boy Paul jumps right into one of the Gurney classics that I'm sure he has grown up listening to. Now, what's funny here, actually, is while he's just sort of on autopilot singing this love song unintentionally to Chani, his mind is elsewhere because this chapter ends with a very dark thought. Quote, my mother is my enemy. She does not know it, but she is. She is bringing the jihad. She bore me. She trained me. She is my enemy. End quote. Woof. What a way to end a chapter. Okay, well, we're on to then chapter 35. And again, this is another chunky chapter. So buckle up. <laughs> we are on a new planet, which we've only heard of a couple of times, Giddy Prime, which is the Harkonnen homeworld. And we are finally back with our lad, our antagonistic lad, Fade Rautha Harkonnen. Mm -hmm. Now, it's Fade's birthday. And you know what, folks? Nothing spells celebration like murdering a slave because he's a Harkonnen. And this is the best thing to do on your birthday. Now, aside from the celebration, because we're actually following, at the beginning of this chapter, we're actually following Count Hasimir Fenring and his wife, Margot Fenring, as they amble through the keep in Harko City. And it's amazing. They're, uh, they're, they're talking in this secret humming language. And it's described that they're talking in their secret humming language during these first few pages. But we don't really get a sense of what that is until Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, accompanied by his nephew, Fade Rautha, uh, approach them. And in the following exchange, we actually do get a direct sense of the humming language because we are now on the outside of it. We are 
hearing Count Hasimir Fenring talking to his wife, but we have no idea what they're saying. We only get the like normal speech words that are kind of interspersed by these hmm hmm and like ha ah, and like yeah. I've I've no I'm so curious to hear this done <laughs> in uh, Villeneuve's adaptations, right. but um, we don't know. And and Baron and Fade are also like we have no idea what they're talking about other than what they're saying to us. We also get this sense through this section that Fenring is, although he's described as sort of a short-statured, kind of a lithe man, not really remarkable in any particular way, we get a sense that he is tremendously dangerous, you know? Oh, yeah. Baron Harkonnen even says he's the kind of killer you really have to watch out for, you know, the manners of a rabbit, but still altogether deadly. It's really, uh, it's my favorite kind of character. It's so cool. Yeah. After some small talk, Fade basically departs to prepare for combat. There's a hilarious exchange where he offers to dedicate the kill to Margot, and she's like, no. <laughs> and he's like, oh, <laughs> it's amazing. Just playing hard Margot to get. is definitely a queen, no <laughs> doubt. She's so powerful. I love her. The Baron asks permission at this point to speak privately with Count Fenring because he kind of suspects Fenring's there on imperial business because he's like BFFs with the Emperor, and uh, he wants to kind of get that out of the way. Under a cone of silence, one of my favorite little pieces of Dune technology, the Baron and Count Fenring have a tense chat. Oh, man. Basically, these like thinly veiled threats are being thrown back and forth. You really get a sense that Fenring is just a pistol. Like He is so smart. He's lightning quick, and he's always implying and insinuating without outright saying things. Which makes it then, of course, hard to, like, nail him down on anything, you know? Right. Basically, the long story short, the Emperor is super pissed about how everything played out. Didn't want Paul and Jessica and all the, you know, fine folks of the Atreides household. Didn't necessarily want them, like, straight up murked. So he's like, all right, Baron, you got to wipe out the remaining Fremen with the Sardaukar forces. And also, why'd you get rid of the Sardaukar forces? What are you doing? You idiot. <laughs> right. If you don't do this, I'm going to block Fade Rautha taking over as the Harkonnen heir, which the Baron is absolutely like flabbergasted at this. He's like, but, but, but. And yeah, he's and so sweaty. He's so sweaty. <laughs> and Fenring's like, yo, you're going to try to call her bluff, idiot? Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> right. Turns out, guys, the emperor of the galaxy is kind of powerful. <laughs> right. So that's the chat. That's the conversation they have. Now, on to Fade's kind of birthday murder. <laughs> He's got two knives, right? One that's supposed to be poisoned and one that's not supposed to be poisoned. It's just a knife. And uh, fun fact, he switched them. He's like, eh, got him. no one will expect this. We also find out throughout this scene that there are a lot of schemes at play. But the fact that he switched the poison on his blades, no one else knows about that. <laughs> Yeah, Fade just did that for fun, kind of. He's like, he has this great line, you know, let my future people never know which blade is poison. Yeah, uh, I love kinda... that. I mean, he he does it because he's devious, but he also does it for extra insurance. He's going into like a deadly ploy here. And he they're about to play out this deadly ruse in the gladiator arena. And it's extra insurance for him that no one knows which blade has the poison on it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, again, this is a plan that he came up with with Thufir Hawa, right? 
past Mintad of House Atreides, who's still kind of doing his own thing. They have a plan. They're going to give the people of Harko City this crazy spectacle and send a message to them that their future kind of barren to be is not someone you want to fuck with. Like, this is not someone to be taken lightly. Mm -hmm. Normally, Fade is fighting these slaves who are drugged out of their minds on a lack of drug, which we'll talk about later in the morsels. But not today. This slave, who turns out used to be an Atreides soldier who was captured during the Arrakis attack, he's been conditioned to a muscular response at the word scum, which fade can say at some point and it will cause the man to like momentarily hesitate which of course being a trained fighter himself fade will then use that as the edge he needs to win the fight right now the overall why to this plot is that the baron and the people of getty prime will be like shocked and scared to see their you know future leader nearly killed yeah but oh my god he Fended for himself, he killed the dude on his own merits as a fighter. That's badass. And that's the plan, you know? Quote, I'll give them a show such as they've never had before. No tame killing where they can sit back and admire the style. This will be something to take them by the guts and twist them. When I'm barren, they'll remember this day and won't be a one of them can escape fear of me because of this day. End quote clearly taking after his uncle and like yeah. his strategies for how to rule people brutal and he's a showman he knows how to play yeah. this up he knows how to earn his glory in the gladiator fights here now the fight over the crowd goes fucking bonkers <laughs> they love it internally the baron is fuming externally he's like yeah okay there's gonna be a a feat you know, public celebration, and they kind of, it's kind of riding the crowd. They like run out and they hoist him up into the air. It's it's a lot of fun, but yeah, he's he's fuming inwardly, and basically thinking, man, I got to kill that slave master who fucked up right. and like nearly killed my heir. The chapter ends on a private conversation between Count Hasimir Fenring and Lady Margot, and they're having this in their kind of secret language as they walk away. Basically, they both saw right through Fade's little plan. Pretty, uh, pretty ballsy, kid. We like it. We're here for it. You know, they saw through the lie, but they're like, that's a good lie. Good job. Right. That's pretty good. They, as it turns out, as we kind of learned earlier, are not really here on vacation. They are on Giddy Prime, you know, in Harco City to assess Fade. Basically, both from a Benny Gesserit perspective is his bloodline worth preserving? And if it is, Margot's got to seduce him. But also, whether or not he's worthy as the designated heir to House Harkonnen. Right. We get this uh, this quote. Hypno-legation of that fade Routha's psyche and his child in my womb? Then we go. <laughs> End quote. That's her to-do list. All righty. Wow. Those were beefy chapters. These next couple should be a lot quicker. So let's breeze through the rest of this summary. Chapter 36. We are back with Paul and Jessica as the troop arrives at CH Tabur. And it smells in here, folks. <laughs> yeah. Paul spends a weird amount of time here, like thinking about how bad it smells, which is funny, but like a page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it also makes sense. Again, 
his first time in a siege, just another part of Fremen lifestyle and culture that is foreign to him, that's alien to him. He's royalty. He has never just like lived in the in a cave in the desert. So, of course, the smell is something he would immediately be assaulted with. Now, everybody else in the troop is stoked to be home. They love the smell, folks. They love it. <laughs> they love it. They love it. Ah. Siege, siege candles coming soon. <laughs> this is Honestly, this is very relatable to me because eventually, after a few years in New York, you just stop smelling the piss everywhere. And <laughs> then you st- start getting a little nostalgic about it. You know, every time you leave New York, you're uh, like, what's this? Fresh air? What the yeah. fuck? Where's my piss? And then you get you get home and you're like, ah, there it is, baby. Sweet, sweet piss. There it is. <laughs> I had a friend. I was complaining about how much New York smells bad. And a friend was like, what makes it smell bad? And I was like, the literal urine everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the whole city's covered in garbage. I don't know what. Is that a trick question? Right, what are you asking? Have you seen those exhaust pipes that are just billowing fumes everywhere? <laughs> anyway, little New York side tangent. Everyone is stoked to be back in CH to Burr slash New York City, baby. But <laughs> this relief to be home is underscored by some really, really sad news. On their way back to the CH, they receive a message that Liet Kynes, father of Johnny, is dead. Now, before anything can really be sort of done with that, Paul has to take time to be a dad today. I mean, he he has <laughs> surprise. Like this is a shocker, folks. We got to remember he's 15 at this moment, but because he bested Jameis in that duel, he is now responsible for Jameis's widow and Jameis's children. And in this conversation with Stilgar and Hara and Paul, he gets the choice to either take her on as his wife right in, in sort of a more romantic capacity or to bring her into his household as a servant for a year's time in which he is responsible for her and her children's well-being and then after that year she is a free woman and can choose to either stay or leave right and while that concept may seem foreign to sort of us with our western mentalities and our modern like romantic sensibilities you got to remember, this is desert survival, right? Like right. every single person in this edge at some point probably has to face down Harkonnens or Sardaukar or some other deadly enemy. I mean, fucking giant worms, you know, like people are dying left and right here out in the desert. How do you right. protect the families back in this edge? It's not that these women are incapable I'm sure Hara is a fucking killer fighter yeah. and could hold her own. It's more about what happens when one family member is stripped away in an accident in the desert that inevitably happens. How do you maintain that family unit? How do you make sure the children and the future of the tribe are protected? This is their method. So Hara takes Paul to his chambers. And during this walk through Siege Tabur, we actually get some cool opportunities to learn more about Fremen technology. He peers into these rooms where it's obvious that people are making still suits. And Hara even mentions that she works part-time in the still suit factory, helping construct those still suits that are so vital to survival out in the desert. Paul also sees 
a class of young Fremen out here learning. So they've got schools. He sees other manufacturing happening. This is a fully functioning community. This is not just what the Baron believes are a couple of savages living in caves like peasants out in the desert. This is a functioning community with this goal in mind of, again, collecting this water, changing the face of Arrakis, surviving out here in the desert. This, This is a group of people that knows exactly what they're doing. And so the chapter ends basically on Paul asking Hara to go get him some food and she rushes off while he tries to sort of take a moment to just kind of sit and think. Because remember, up until this point, he's basically been on the run ever since that attack on his family by the Harkonnens. They've been out in the desert right. fighting for survival day in and day out, being chased by Harkonnens. He has not had a moment to just sit and breathe and think about all this and try to process particularly his prescient visions. So now that he's in this apartment, he takes a moment to try and relax and think. But that moment is interrupted because (laughs) James's two young sons burst in like all all high energy, knives in their hands, and look at him with greedy eyes. (laughs) Kind of a funny anticlimactic note to end this chapter on with these kids bursting into the apartment. We're on to chapter 37. The Fremen of C.H. Tabur gather in a massive hall for an important ceremony. This is one of my favorite chapters. As Stilgar tells the kind of gathered Fremen, they have to uh, abandon this Siege that they've called home for so long and head deeper south into the desert to avoid these kind of incoming Harkonnen and Sardaukar attacks. A complication here is their reverend mother, Romalo. She can't survive the trip. It's going to be too hard on her body. It's going to be too hard for her to make that trip. So Jessica, being the go-getter that she is, is like, yeah, I'll go. I'll do it. (laughs) The rite begins, and the poisonous water of life, which is created by drowning a a baby sandworm, basically. Um, Jessica's forced to take just the biggest gulps. (laughs) It freaks me out a bit, like reading this page, knowing how deadly the water of life is. Yeah. The fact that these, like, multiple massive gulps, you know, they talk about Johnny, like, squeezing the bag. I wonder if Chani's like trying to get rid of the troublesome mother-in-law in this situation. Uh. <laughs> it's a lot. She's like squeezing the bag and Jessica's like, I'm not sure what's going on. <laughs> she suddenly has a lot of this hyper deadly poison inside of her. And then time freezes. And she's like, huh, what a weird effect of this poison. Oh, it's not the poison. It's my body trying to keep me from dying. <laughs> right. Basically, her Benny Gesserit training, her prana bendu, And her survival instinct are all kind of like teaming up in this moment and saying, you need time to figure this out. So we're going to give you time. And she's forced to play this like molecule mini game (laughs) in the middle of this ancient (laughs) rite. And she discovers what the poison is, first of all, the nature of the poison. And then by shifting just a couple of molecules here and there. So she's changing the molecular makeup of this poison and she creates a catalyst that shifts the poison into being inert or like safe or (laughs) non-deadly. And the catalyst that Jessica basically just created (laughs) molecularly uh, spreads to the rest of the water of life in the big jugs that Chani's holding. Once all of that's done, or kind of once that's happened, 
Reverend Mother Ramalo approaches her and kind of touches her neck. We then get this airdrop, you know, <laughs> instant transfer of all of her memories, just all of them. Just here you go. Going to put the VCR in. We're going to put it to 128 times speed. <laughs> We're going to get through this four hour movie in, you know, 28 seconds. It's going to be great. Now, as a side note, Ramalo had a lover. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah, she did. Yeah. Whose memories Jessica sees. Quote, she knew each experience as it happened. There was a lover, virile, bearded, with, with the Fremen eyes. <laughs> and Jessica saw his strength and tenderness, all of him in one blink moment, through the Reverend Mother's memory. End quote. Virile and bearded. That's how they describe uh. me. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's on your Twitter profile. It's pretty good. But wait, there is a snag. There's a problem. During this kind of high-speed data transfer, Jessica's unborn daughter is also exposed to this data transfer, is also exposed to this absolute wash of experiences. Now, both Jessica and Romalo are like, oh, shit, uh, hmm, that's going to be very interesting later. Right. <laughs> like, we don't know what's going to happen, um, but Romalo's like, I don't have a lot of time, right? Quote, I have much to give you. And I do not know if your daughter can accept all this while remaining sane, but it must be. The needs of the tribe are paramount, end quote. A very Fremen sentiment there. Right. You know, the needs of the tribe, the water needs of the tribe must be met, that sort of thing. After the download is complete, the Reverend Mother, Romalo, passes away, and Jessica is officially promoted. She is actually straight up a fully-fledged reverend mother. Leveled up, baby. She's, <laughs> she's there. Level 16 Jessica has evolved into some other Pokemon joke. Anyway, <laughs> she's evolved. And as part of this level up, she actually now has access to her ancestral memories and all of the abilities that come with that, right? All of her female ancestors, she can now tap into their memories and experiences. The giant sacks of now totally safe to drink water of life is then passed around and basically everyone gets in on it and it riles them up gets them all hot and bothered and partially it's like opening their minds to a shared consciousness right all sounds very like 70s party <laughs> in san francisco right just a bunch of people vibing together and just having these life experiences, yeah, these life-changing experiences. Yeah, a, a lot of prescient visions, I imagine, happening in the 70s in San Francisco. Oh, my God. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> People saw millions of futures those years. <laughs> and you know what? Just like I'm sure some of those parties in the 70s, this ends in an orgy, baby. Uh, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's an orgy. It's a, it's a good old-fashioned. And you know what? Paul and Chani, being the lovebirds that they are. They steal away, they go to her private chambers, and folks, we know where this is going. <laughs> they uh they get at it. They 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 have a good old time. And that wraps up our chapter. Alrighty. Let's also wrap up this incredibly long quick summary <laughs> with our final chapter of this section. Chapter 38. We have now crossed the threshold into the final arc of this story. We are into book three, The Prophet. And we join Baron Vladimir Harkonnen as he rages 
into the servant's antechamber and terrifies the shit out of his guard captain, Yakin Nifud, by asking where Fade Ratha is. And we also learn at this point that this is post-time skip. Yeah. This final arc takes place two years after the Arrakis affair. Now, as it turns out, Fade is also out here banging, baby. <laughs> He's down at the pleasure pits with some of the slave women. And this just sets the Baron off. My guy is fuming. But at this very moment, Fade very suspiciously and conveniently shows up at the door and thus accidentally plays his hand. Quote, the presence of his nephew here, now, the look of hurry that the young man could not quite conceal, all revealed much. Fade Rotha had his own spy system focused on the Baron. End quote. Mm. Again, plants within plants within plants. These folks are always scheming against each other. Fade showed up here because he knew he was in trouble. Yeah. Now, the Baron orders the body of the young boy that was just in his room to be removed. And we learn that Fade had attempted to use a hidden needle on this young boy's body to kill his uncle. It was an assassination attempt. Now, Fade at this point realizes, oh shit, I've been got and I need to cut my losses. And that's exactly what he does. The Baron also orders two other guards in the room to be killed because they were obviously the spies for Fade. Fade sort of plays his hand there too. Now the Baron and Fade return to the Baron's chambers and they have a little heart to heart. Notably, while they're walking to the chambers, the Baron sort of casually mentions these reports that they've received from Arrakis. Something about this new prophet that the Fremen have now been following, <laughs> some guy named Wadib. Ever heard of him? Yeah, no, not, but, never heard of him. Who's that? <laughs> no one important, probably. I don't know. No one important. And that's exactly the Baron's <laughs> mentality. In classic Baron fashion, he brushes this aside as nothing of consequence. The Baron then tells Fade how foolish it was to try and assassinate him. He saw right through the attempt. How could Fade think he'd be able to fool the great Vladimir Argonin? How impressive. <laughs> how impressive until the very next line where you realize that <laughs> actually right. the Baron didn't catch the assassination attempt, didn't see the needle. It was Thufir Hawat who tipped him off and warned him about this hidden needle. But, you know, a little white lie to scare some sense into your nephew, that never hurt anyone. Let him think that the Baron figured it out all on his own. Right. Now, this conversation continues, and the Baron offers his feisty young heir a bargain. He promises to Fade that sometime in the future, he will step down willingly and allow Fade Ratha to rise to power and take his seat. But only if Fade stops trying to get little boys to fucking kill him. <laughs> He's like, cut it out. Stop it. Stop trying right. to kill stop, me. <laughs> stop trying to assassinate me. Like, this heart-to-heart -heart is suddenly getting real direct. Yeah. And Fade is kind of like, ah, shit, you know, like, I've been got. It's really impressive that my uncle, like, saw right through my assassination attempt. And he's thinking to himself, quote, is he being truthful? Does he really mean to retire? Why not? 
I'm sure to succeed him one day if I move carefully. He can't live forever. Perhaps it was foolish to try hurrying the process, end quote. So he's already sort of leaning towards agreeing to this bargain. But we know the Baron. He's a schemer. He's a tactical thinker. He knows how to play people. So he sweetens the deal. Right. In a brilliant stroke, the Baron also mentions to Fade that he has been using the Fear Hawat in a long con, in a play for the Imperial Throne. Oh, snap. To overthrow the Carino Empire that has been in the seat of power for nearly 10,000 years. The Baron's <laughs> going for the big seat. And shit, you know, this perks up Fade Rotha's ears and basically seals the deal in this bargain. The Baron thinks to himself, quote, let my dear nephew try a taste of that. Let him say to himself, the Emperor, Fade Rotha Harkonnen. Let him ask himself how much that's worth. Surely it must be worth the life of one old uncle who could make that dream come to pass. End quote. Mm. Uh, brilliant. Yeah. But, of course, as we round out this chapter... Fate agrees to this whole bargain thing, whatever, yada, yada. <laughs> We're still talking about the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Right. And he's not about to let go of this little assassination attempt on his life. He needs to still punish his nephew, put him in his place. So as punishment, he tells Fade that he must kill all the women in the pleasure wing as the Baron watches. <laughs> My God. Quote, yeah. there will be other women, Fade but I have said that you do not make a mistake casually with me. You will accept your punishment and learn something from it. Damn. Ugh. Chilling stuff from the Baron here. Chilling stuff. I'm starting to think this Baron guy is not such a good guy. Yeah. I don't know. That's, I, maybe I think that's, you're onto something there. That's bold. I don't know. That's a hot take. <laughs> wow. What a yeah. way to end that chapter. And that's where we end our section today. Yeah. What an incredible set of chapters. I mean, we had some major events, funerals, orgies, <laughs> gladiator fights, right. Right. ancient poison water rituals. Time stopping. <laughs> time stopping. Yeah. So much wild shit that I frankly cannot wait to see on screen. All of oh these things will be such a cinematic treat to see visualized on screen. This is the set of chapters that just, ah, this is the stuff movies are made of. Can't wait. Yo, same. Now, we're going to talk about our key takeaways, but before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. We'll get right back into it right after this. Okay, we are back, and now it's time for the takeaway section. We have two Beefy takeaways to get through. So let's jump right in. Takeaway number one from today's reading is the history of the Fremen. This was a small part of the Reverend Mother ceremony when Jessica unlocks her ancestral memories and becomes a Reverend Mother. She's peering through these ancestral memories and Jessica sees the complete history of the Fremen, which yeah. is something that we don't know at all about. Now, we actually dedicated a incredibly massive two-part 
spoiler episode to the entire history of the Fremen in the entire Dune saga. But today we figured we'd go over it in a more spoiler-free fashion and just talk about what we've learned here from Jessica and sprinkle in some extra Dune lore and nuance from the encyclopedia without getting into spoiler stuff that happens later on in the books. Right. Because the history of the Fremen themselves is so fascinating and truly paints a fuller picture of why Fremen culture is what it is once you understand their history. Oh, totally. So let's get through it. In ancient times, the Fremen were known as the Zen Sunni, the Zen Sunni Wanderers, which were a splinter group that broke off from one of the old Terra religions. Their name and culture kind of clearly adapts from Islam and Buddhism, right? We've got right. Zen and Sunni. <laughs> and it's just addition, folks. <laughs> now, they believed they were, they were nomads. They believed they didn't really owe any kind of allegiance to secular government, and they really did prefer to live kind of tribal nomadic lives in harsh environments like the Sahara Desert. Now, the emperor at that time had just inherited a planet called Poritrin. And the thing about getting a planet is you got to put people on it and people aren't always willing to just up and leave their planet to go to another one. Right. So he's like, all right, uh, hey, old Terra, give me two million people because, you know, kind of like taxes. You owe me two million people. We're going to put them on that planet. The governor of planet Earth or Terra was like, oh, man, <laughs> dang, that's a lot of people. Uh, where do I have two million people that don't get along with me or my rules? Hmm. And then he noticed the approximately two million Zen Sunni <laughs> in the <laughs> desert, and they basically just shipped them out. They like evicted yeah. them from Earth and sent them to Poritrin. So the Zen Sunni, their first stop from Old Terra was a planet called. Poritrin. Now, it actually turns out that Poritrin was a, quote-unquote, soft planet, <laughs> right. plenty of water, lots of fertile soil, yeah. and these very adaptable Zensuni quickly began to thrive and, in fact, started to abandon some of their old nomadic lifestyle and independence and right. really sort of settled down on this soft, squishy planet. <laughs> Jessica actually sees this in her memories, quote, there had been Fremen on Poritrin, she saw, a people grown soft with an easy planet, fair game for imperial raiders to harvest and plant human colonies on Bella Tigus and Seleucus Secundus, end quote. Right. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happens. The emperor then gives Poritrin to House Alexan. He's overmanaging this damn planet. He's done with it. <laughs> and thus sends his imperial forces to remove the pesky Zen Sunni, who were then divided into two groups, one that was sent to the planet Bella Tegus and the other group that was sent to Seleucus Secundus. Ever heard of it? <laughs> yeah. Notably, not a soft planet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, famously hard. Famously firm, <laughs> right. hard planet, not soft. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the end of their journey, though, obviously, because neither of those places are Arrakis. <laughs> Imperial forces, once again, are like, uh, okay, no, but for real, Bellategus, we got to get you off this planet. And 
Although the Zensuni kind of put up more of a fight that time, you know, they kept to towns and they defended themselves a bit. They just weren't, they weren't prepared for the might of the Sardaukar and the, you know, right. the imperial soldiers. So they were sent to Harmanthep and Rosic, two new planets. Again, split and sent again. Right. And what's interesting is up until this point, the Zensuni had held on to their history as a people through these sort of sages, I guess, known as the Saedina, a word that we obviously know to this day. Yeah. And these Saedina kept their history alive through word of mouth and through oral traditions and storytelling. That all changed, however, on the planet Rasek. When that group of Zensuni were split and sent to Rasek, the Saedina there discovered a poison that could unlock the genetic memories of every Saedina before her. And later, these Saedinas and this term was changed to Reverend Mothers after the influence of the Missionaria Protectiva and right. Benny Gesserit tampering. From Jessica's memories in this chapter, quote, She saw the thread of the past carried by Saedina after Saedina, first by word of mouth, hidden in the sand chanties, then refined through their own reverend mothers with the discovery of the poison drug on Rasek, and now developed to subtle strength on Arrakis in the discovery of the water of life, end quote. Now, these discoveries of sort of permanent bookkeeping through these <laughs> memories, I yeah. mean, you know, like this is a way to access your genetic memory in a way that's not been possible for these people before right. who have been yeah. relocated time and time and time again. You can imagine how hard it is to keep historical records when your people keep getting forcefully relocated and right. slaughtered. This dramatically changes Zen Sunni culture and with this deep knowledge and understanding of their own history and their own troubled past, they begin to plan for a future where they can stop this brutality against their people and they negotiate with the spacing guild for passage to the planet arrakis they decide that is where the future of their people will be that is where they can be safe and hidden from any more imperial tampering and it makes sense right like you look back on your genetic history and you go when were we the most independent and capable and strong well when we were challenged by the elements when we were in the deserts of old terra and it was only right. once we got soft on Portrin and then stayed soft on Belategus, those times were really the, the times that we became then the people that could be forcefully relocated without being able to stand up for ourselves. So what's that? An incredibly harsh desert planet? Pfft, sign us up. Let's go. Yeah. We're going to do this <laughs> because we did it in the past and we can do it again. So pretty dope. I love this moment of them kind of grasping their destiny. And it really truly speaks to this idea that understanding your history is yeah. how you ensure your future. Oh my gosh, right? yeah. It wasn't until the Sayadinas used this drug on Rasek to fully understand their history that the Zen Sunni people could then plan for the future. I think that's a beautiful message here told through this brutal history of the Zen Sunni wanderers. This idea that understanding and comprehending your history is how you forge 
into the future, into a better future. It is so beautiful. I just love that message that weaved throughout this. A hundred percent. Now, as they planned this trip to Arrakis, one story kind of tells us that really they were looking at this on a pragmatic level. They were saying, you know, the older, the, the sicker people, they're not going to make this journey. It's going to take a long time. And also we're going to get to this planet that has no mercy for us. So what do we do? Well, we send the young. Yeah. <laughs> we send the, the ones who are going to survive. And basically the future of the Zinsuni people, they put it in the hands of these younger generations and they send them forward. You know, from the Dune Encyclopedia, we get, quote, this time the Zensuni themselves would be doing the dividing among their people, for it had been possible to accumulate only enough to buy passage for the young. Guild rates were ruinously expensive, end quote, which <laughs> at the time of Dune has not changed. <laughs> they are still... <laughs> gutting people and highway robbery <laughs> my opinion yeah. on the matter <laughs> right inflation what, what, a, what a really powerful quote there though yeah. they themselves would be doing the dividing uh that that gives me chills just reading that like they have been forcefully divided their entire history and now they have to make this incredibly tough decision on who will go to arrakis and continue into this new future for their people really really heartbreaking stuff yeah and this mentality continues to this day. Yeah. After the Zensuni arrive on Arrakis and their culture evolves and they rename themselves as the Fremen, we see here in this chapter how deep this mentality is still ingrained within their culture. Reverend Mother Romalo says to Stilgar at the start of the ritual, quote, Since our Sunni ancestors fled from Nilatic al-Oraba, we have known flight and death. The young go on that our people shall not die. End quote. Uh, another incredible quote. <laughs> incredible. So good. And exactly the decision they had to make on this trip to Arrakis so many generations ago. And we see this mentality again just a little bit later in the chapter when that high-speed airdrop download is happening between <laughs> Romalo and Jessica and they realize, oh no, there's another consciousness here. Your right. unborn daughter is also downloading this data. We don't know what's going to happen. Romalo chooses to press forward. Right. Because the preservation of the tribe always comes first. And it's, again, that decision of our future is the most important thing. How do we continue to survive as a people? It's so deeply ingrained in their culture. And once you understand this fuller picture of Fremen history and Zensuni history and what brought them to Arrakis, a lot of their culture and traditions and rituals and mindset start to make sense. Oh, totally. You see where they come from and how they got here and all of it makes sense. Of course, these are people who can dream of a green Arrakis and make long-term plans generations down the line. Of course, these are people who are brutal fighters who defend their homes and families to the last breath. That's all they've known. Right. Of course, these are people that fucking hate the Imperium because <laughs> yeah. their entire history is all about being abused by the Imperial forces. Like, everything clicks into place once you understand Fremen history. So that's why we wanted to make that today's first takeaway. It's so important and so eye-opening to see Fremen culture through that lens. 
Yeah, the Fremen are such a big part of Dune. Yeah. Yeah, it's really incredible stuff. Okay, let's keep trucking because we have one more takeaway to get through. Takeaway number two, politics of the Imperium. <laughs> Woo! Politics. <In> these chapters. <laughs> right. Politics, folks. Here we go. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> well, welcome to AP Gov. <laughs> yeah. So we get some really incredible insights into some political scheming in these right. chapters. We've already touched on quite a bit of this in the summary earlier, but it's worth getting into just a few of these facets a little deeper because particularly these interactions between Count Fenring and the Baron and Fade Ratha and even Hawat, even though we don't really see him in these chapters, right. he's still yeah. pulling strings behind the scenes. All of it is so interesting and really paints a broader picture of what politics is like and what governance is like in this world, in this universe. So let's break it down. We're going to take it one head-to-head -head battle at a time. <laughs> and our first two fighters in the ring, Count Fenring on the left, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen on the right, under that cone of silence. Uh, what a stage. What a stage for a combat. <laughs> what a tense scene, yeah. I mean... Just a very quick side note, I found it absolutely hilarious that Fenring goes from zero to 60 in three seconds flat <laughs> from a mumbling, bumbling caricature using his weird, like, mm -ha, mm -ha, mm -ha, right. <laughs> to just like this no bullshit attitude badass yeah. as soon as they're under the code of silence. Turns into a stone cold <laughs> fucking killer in an instant. You fucked up, Baron. <laughs> just <laughs> immediately. <laughs> It's such a good point, and it's funny because when you know that it's a secret mum, like it's a secret language with Margot, you know that he's saying things to her. But you have to imagine Baron, who doesn't know that, is seeing this guy, and he doesn't know it's a secret language. So he's just hearing the ma 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 ma, ma and then they get yeah. under this cone, and he's like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> ah, like, oh lord, it's incredible. I definitely. This is probably one of the funniest moments to me as well yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and you talked earlier in our summary about how fenring is a dude to be afraid of yeah like a, a deadly person in the galaxy and we actually get that from an excerpt at the start of chapter 38 quote the closest anyone ever came to casual camaraderie with the padishah emperor was the relationship offered by count hazimir fenring a companion from childhood yeah. This guy is like BFFs with Emperor Shaddam. Like he is Shaddam's right-hand man. And based off of the Baron's very sweaty reaction during this conversation <laughs> so, to everything so that's sweaty. being said, yeah. so sweaty. The dude's dripping. It's clear. And not the not the fashion sense. He's not dripping. He could be. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean he, to he, judge him. We didn't hear right. what he was wearing. It's fine. <laughs> right. I imagine the Baron doesn't have the drip. He is just drippy. <laughs> he's got the drip oh nice no the other one <laughs> uh. but it, it's very clear to us as the reader during this conversation in the cone of silence that fenring is ruthless and cunning and terrifying it, it really gives me these like tywin lannister hand of the king vibes oh, we're gonna yeah. make some game of thrones analogies here oh totally now we learn a lot about the relationship between the emperor and the landstrad and sort of these governing bodies 
from this conversation. And we realize how kind of precariously and delicately balanced all of these powers are against each other. And again, in the summary earlier, you talked about how the emperor is kind of pissed about how this whole Arrakis affair went down. And Fenring is here to basically deliver that message, to tell the Baron that the emperor is not happy with him. He is annoyed that Jessica and Paul and Kynes were killed and that there was so much bloodshed and that he now wants the Baron to deal with his Fremen problem. Right. Of course, the Baron snaps back and is like, what Fremen problem? There's This is nothing to worry about. Yeah. And I was well within my rights to throw the Sardaukar off the planet unless the Emperor wants the rest of the Landstrad to realize that the Sardaukar were, were involved in this whole thing. It's kind of throwing these subtle threats back right back at Fenring. And they kind of do continue to do this tap dance back and forth. Fenring implies that the Emperor's mood has soured right. on his co-conspirator on Baron Harkonnen and throws out the idea of like, hey, the emperor might fucking call you a traitor, call you out as a traitor in front of everybody. And the Baron, interestingly enough, relishes this idea. I I love this quote because the Baron thinks to himself, quote, let him wrong me. Then the bribes, the coercion, the rallying of the great houses They'd flock to my banner like peasants running for shelter. The thing they fear above all else is the emperor's Sardaukar loosed upon them one house at a time. End quote. Uh. Already, we see the baron is scheming, baby. Yeah. He's going for the throne. He's already making plans yeah. on how to bring the great houses together under his banner and overthrow the emperor. Crazy stuff. All the emperor has to do is make one mistake. And we know... The Baron is a tactical genius and will make the Emperor regret making that one mistake against him. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really clear here that kind of both parties are waiting for the other one to mess up because they really do both have a reason to keep it secret, but because they're just like constantly plotting against each other, (laughs) it it is this dance of, okay, we've got to keep things moving together forward, but... You watch your step buddy, boo, because if you fuck up, I'm going to be there. And if someone messes up, whether it's the Emperor or whether it's Baron Harkonnen, very quickly we can see how the cards would fall and someone would lose their position of power and also almost certainly their life in some twisted way. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. A really tense scene and such insight into crazy shit happening in the royalty in these great houses and in the empire uh, between these people of power. It's pretty wild. Now, this leads us into the next head-to-head, that match having concluded. In the left corner, we've got Baron Harkonnen, and in the right corner, we've got a new newcomer to the ring, uh, Fade <laughs> Rautha Harkonnen. Very exciting. Everyone cheers. A young Everyone start. Goes He's got a mean right hook, folks. Let's see how he does in the ring today. He writes some good hooks, folks. That's a sting musician joke. Okay, so <laughs> do you get it? Anyway, I so got it. good. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of allegiances that you'd expect to be sturdy but are surprisingly tense, <laughs> we have another very delicate balance of power, and it comes down to Baron and his nephew. Which is really yeah. surprising because, again, you'd think, you know, he's kind of a father figure and 
Fade's life, but not quite. Multiple assassination attempts. This is family <laughs> units are interesting in Dune. The Baron needs Fade. Like he needs to have an heir designate. He doesn't have any kids of his own. So he needs Fade. Fade is young. He's capable. He's a good fighter. He's also, I guess, beautiful. I don't think that really matters, but the Baron mentions it every time. So I'll mention it here. He's an obvious heir. Like he's the obvious pick. And he's, we see in this, these chapters, he's got style. He's got flair. He's got showmanship, you know, bravura, right? Mm-hmm. But he's also fucking trying to kill Baron. <laughs> he's like, oh, <laughs> uh, he's perfect if he wouldn't stop trying to kill me. It's really a <laughs> really fascinating familial relationship there. Right. Fascinating is certainly one word for it. <laughs> right. uh, tense and also fucked up is a, a, another <laughs> phrase I'd perhaps use uh-huh. for that. Yeah. But uh, as we talked about in the summary, this is the scene where the Baron just kind of puts all his cards on the table and makes Fade see the value in keeping him around. The Baron says, quote, you're good material, Fade. I don't waste good material. You persist, however, in refusing to learn my true value to you. You are obstinate. You do not see why I should be preserved as someone of utmost value to you, end quote. And like we talked about earlier, the Baron reveals, hey, I'm using Hawat to aim for the throne. I got bigger dreams, kid. Stop trying to kill me. Right. The Baron says about Hawat, quote, his hate for me is a casual thing now. He believes he can best me any time. Believing this, he is bested, for I direct his attention where I want, against the Imperium, end quote. And so this is the value proposition that he makes to Fade. You wait your turn, stop trying to stab me in the back, and <laughs> yeah. in return, I could one day put you on the Imperial throne. Yeah. And obviously, this is too juicy of a deal for Fade to turn down. And he agrees. For now. Because again, remember, we're talking about a Harkonnen. And Fade thinks to himself about his uncle, quote, a sword to be wielded until he's too blunt for use, end quote. Mm, another great, great, great quote. quote. And again, scheming here. Fade isn't totally buying into this deal, but he's along for the ride if it means he gets to be king. I love, too, the quote about Hawat because... The Baron's saying two things, right? He's saying, I'm manipulating Fufir Hawat to do what I want him to do. But he's also kind of acknowledging that Hawat is a mentat. (laughs) He's like, yeah, he can hate me casually. And we have this kind of antagonism between us. But I'm using him as a mentat and he's helping me. Like, it's great. And that kind of brings us to the final matchup, which... Guys, this is the headliner (laughs) event. This is the fight y'all paid for. In the left corner, we have, drum roll, Thufur Hawat. Great. Abu, who's in the right corner? In the right corner, Leo, is everybody? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone else. The whole rest of everyone. Just all of them. I mean, we haven't seen him since he's been captured, but like... Every other scene that we spend with the Harkonnens, we're hearing about plots and plots and plots. I mean, in one paragraph, we're hearing Baron going, oh, thank God Thufur Hawat told me about that assassination attempt. And then in the next 
in the next paragraph, we get Fade Routha, or maybe it's the other way around, goes, I wonder if Thufir Hawat and my plan to kill Baron was exposed. <laughs> you literally have him, like, pitting everyone against each other. Yeah. And never, never getting called out for it. It's like, it's glorious. It's really wonderful, especially because we see him just get so utterly wrecked in the early portions of this book. His off-page moments here are are glorious. It's really, it's it's masterful. Yeah, it's genius stuff. And I like that you bring up the fact that in the same room, both the Baron and Fade have very similar thoughts about the fear of why. And it's clear that both of them, to some extent, are like duped by Hawat. It's right. genius. Hawat knows and understands the Harkonnens. He knows that they'll lie to each other. And he's utilizing that for his own schemes to, like you said, pit them against each other. It's really brilliant stuff and shows us why Hawat is considered one of the best Mentats in the galaxy at this time. Right. He's out here playing the people who think they're playing him. Our guy's out here playing four-dimensional chess just in every direction. It's killer. It's so good. So good. All right. So that is our two takeaways for today. The complete history of the Fremen people that really paints a fuller picture of who they are and why their culture is the way it is. And a deeper understanding of the politics in the empire through all of this scheming and backstabbing and almost actual stabbing and (laughs) plotting and pitting people against each other. That is constantly happening in the background of this galaxy. Really incredible stuff. Now, next up, we're going to get into our spice morsels, some of that deep cut lore you might have missed. But before we do that, we're going to take another short break. Don't go anywhere, though. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into our spice morsels and wrap up. Lord, what an episode. (laughs) We're almost there. We're almost there. And this part's fun. It's my favorite part. Yeah. So lightning round, really this time. We're going to be quick. (laughs) The temptation to just cut this whole section. No, but we could never. It's my favorite part. We could never. Somebody time us. Start the timer. Start the timer. Baron's (laughs) suspensers. So I am 95% sure we haven't talked about this yet. So let's talk about it. We haven't. It's shocking because it's mentioned every time. But anyway, as Baron approaches Count Fenring and Lady Margot, we get this description. Quote, the Baron moved down the length of the hall with that peculiar waddling glide imparted by the necessities of guiding suspensor-hung weight. His jowls bobbed up and down. The suspensors jiggled and shifted beneath his orange robe. End quote. We get a bit of that Harkonnen drip there. Now, (laughs) these suspensors... We're told earlier in the in the book are because the Baron is such a, a lad. He's such a rotund individual. He's he, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of Baron Harkonnen. He actually he's a, needs the the kids would say he's a unit or what is it? What's the fucking? He's an phrase? absolute unit. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he's an absolute unit, uh, indeed. Now he actually needs suspensors to get around to move his body around, but he treats this as you know opulence this is his wealth kind of we see it maybe as a little bit the gluttony that he succumbs to but certainly he's proud of it and he thinks to himself about beast raban at one point he'll grow to the point of needing suspensors as well that glorious lad you know that sort of thing now about these suspensors they are actually the same technology that allows the glow globes to float 
Throughout the books were described these floating spheres of light, or anything pretty much that floats on the planet, are using suspensors. And not only that, Holtzman, the sort of engineer, physicist, philosopher, cyborg, (laughs) uh, who developed the suspensor technology, also developed, using the same principles, personal shields, which we've seen a lot of, and faster-than-light communication, right? Incredible. Wild stuff. And we actually have a spoiler-free Holtzman episode, which talks about the suspensors. So just wanted to mention that. Finally, about the suspensors, this is why, by the way, in every adaptation so far of Dune, the Baron is this kind of floaty specter. Uh, In David Lynch's, he kind of flies around maniacally cackling. It's really, it's a bold choice. But all of this is made possible by suspensors. Cool stuff. Cool stuff. All right. Next spice morsel is Cone of Silence. We've brought this up time and time again in this episode. That tense conversation between Fenring and the Baron happens under a cone of silence. And as they step into this cone, we get this description from the book. Quote, the sound deadening field, feeling the noises of the keep become dull and distant. End quote. Cool. Now, what is a cone of silence? It's a bit self-explanatory. It's in the name. But from the encyclopedia... (laughs) Mm -hmm. These were usually small zones, about three to four meters in diameter, that basically dampened sound going in or out. Little little privacy curtains of a sort. Now, the encyclopedia also notes that (laughs) in the Harkonnen Palace, there were at least 20 cones of silence installed throughout (laughs) the palace. So many. (laughs) Which is so on brand for such a schemey house. Yeah. And also perfect for this this era of political assassinations and scheming and secrets. You need those cones of silences, folks. Gotta yeah. have a place for those private conversations. Indeed. A little background on the cone of silence. This technology was originally developed by the Ixians in the fourth millennium. Mm-hmm. And if your cone of silence malfunctions and is not so silent anymore... Seems like the Ixians are the go-to IT guys to come help you fix that. The cones of muted conversations not quite as popular on the, <laughs> the tech market. <laughs> Next up, we have Ilaka drug. So, you can guess already where this is going, perhaps. <laughs> Six episodes in, we're talking about it again. Talking about drugs? Obviously, we're talking about a product of Planet Ikaz, baby. Ikaz, it's the best, baby! Best planet, love it. In Fade Rautha's birthday murder, the gladiator slave emerges and we get this blurb. Quote, His skin was carrot-colored, as it should be from the Alaka drug, but Fade Rautha knew the color was paint. End quote. <laughs> A weird detail. We talked about <laughs> the plants and the drugs of Ikaz in our spoiler-free Ikaz episode. So, again, one of my favorites. Check it out. But to sort of rehash the relevant points here very quickly, Alaka drug is a byproduct of burning Alaka wood. That makes a certain sense. Ilaka wood, from the encyclopedia, is a small, hollow tree with jointed stems and large, forked leaves. I know you were curious, and now we've told you. (laughs) The primary effect of the drug, you know, burning this wood, is just an utter disregard for your personal safety. And that's kind of it. I mean, you just don't care. So, 
The Alaka drug is often used when it is used, mostly on like arena slaves, basically, or suicidal assassins are like the two examples that were given. Basically, anytime you want someone to not really care about their own safety or the outcome of whatever they're doing, you give them some of that Alaka drug and they turn orange <laughs> and now they don't care. Alrighty. Next, spice morsel. Nilotic El Araba. Yeah. What the fuck are those words? I said them <laughs> earlier in a quote. Yeah. And I pronounce them in a way that makes it sound like I know what I'm saying. I have no idea how to actually pronounce them. Confidence that, so. 120%. It was great. Right. The Alaka drug I took earlier, totally working. <laughs> now, this term obviously stuck out to us when we read it. And right. being the lore nerds that we are, we had to look into it. Nilotic is a term that uh, I guess literally just means something related to the Nile River. Right. And then the term al-Araba translates to the area. So putting those words together, presumably this term means something along the lines of the area of the Nile River. Right. So there it is. It's a fancy way to remind us where the Zen Sunni people came from, the area of the Nile River. It's also a helpful reminder that Dune is not this disconnected alternate science fiction universe, but something that flows from our very current history far, far into the distant future, tens of thousands of years from now. Indeed. Now, I will say very quickly about this. In researching, doing these translations and looking into it, I saw like five or six claims about what it translated to directly and like references to scripture and some other things. But I swear to goodness, every time I found one that seemed promising, I couldn't find it mentioned anywhere else just at all. It was like one off people with no sourcing. So if you know more about this and we totally missed it, email us. We'll include a correction. That's the as close to we, we could get to clarity on this. Great point. Finally, wrapping up our spice morsels, we got Cheops. <laughs> so yes. I love this. Uh, when Baron Harkonnen questions what Fade was doing in the slave quarters, Fade says, whether or not he's being honest here, again, we kind of assume he's banging, but he's like, no, I was, like, <laughs> I was playing Cheops with the slave master. Come on. Uh, Vladimir immediately clarifies for us, quote, playing pyramid chess. Oh, how nice, right? Cheops always caught my attention, but I didn't really know much about it. Now, personally, the games and entertainment of the universe are, for me, just a, like a fascinating peek into what are the daily lives of our heroes, right? What do they do for fun? What do they do for entertainment? The terminology of the Imperium tells us, quote, pyramid chess or nine level chess with the double object of putting your queen at the apex and the opponent's king in check, end quote. Uh, which is complicated. <laughs> I <laughs> barely understand that. But the Dune Encyclopedia, as always, goes way more in depth. Here are some interesting takeaways from the Dune Encyclopedia entry. Cheops, as a game, is nearly 10,000 years old. Early mentions of it dating only a couple generations after the Butlerian Jihad. We get this blurb, quote, the name, Cheops, is not that of the inventor of the game, as is sometimes supposed. Malat Rai Karen has suggested in his history of architectural form, 
that Cheops was a prehistoric builder of monumental pyramids of unknown function, although his native planet has not at this writing been determined. End quote. <laughs> so, just a quick reminder, the encyclopedia is presented as an in-world historical document, so I love that for the writers of the Dune Encyclopedia, they have lost the history surrounding the Pyramid of Cheops in Egypt on Old Terra. Like, the Pyramid of Cheops is one of the pyramids in Egypt. They don't know that. And I also like pyramids of unknown function. Yeah. <laughs> We've also wondered at those sometimes. <laughs> um, they're very large burial tombs, aren't they? The game itself is pretty unilaterally played. Like, people of all social statuses and, like, on different planets, pretty much everybody has access to this and, and plays it. And there's a galactic ranking. Like, there are competitions that happen on local levels, but there's a galactic competition. And if you win that, you become a grandmaster or a galactic champion. And actually, Cheops has had, in Dune, galactic champions of all genders and also of all social classes. Like, slaves have risen to being galactic champions of Cheops, which... I thought was super cool. Again, it's kind of a an equalizer of anybody who can apply themselves can win, right? Yeah, I think Netflix made a show about this. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Cheops Gambit. It was uh, it was <laughs> <laughs> very good. Ah, <laughs> oh, Leo. Oh, I'm <laughs> exhausted. My what joints. an episode. <laughs> I'm sweating almost as much as Baron Harkonnen was. <laughs> as he oh was my talking gosh, Fenring. Same here. Usually during these recordings, I have the drip. <laughs> this time, dude, I'm drippy, man. Oh, it's a what pitiful, a recording! This has been shift. exhausting, but so much fun. Yeah. Today's episode was maybe one of the most challenging ones to put together, but so fun to get into all of these amazing details. This is an incredible set of chapters, and like we said earlier, we are nearing the end. Yeah. So. For our next book club episode, here's the assignment. Make sure that you have read through page 688 in the paperback copy. Or, as always, if you have a different copy, make sure you've read up to the sentence. Quote, I must contrive it that Paul learns the truth about her before I slay her. End quote. Mm. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Murder in Dune? <laughs> unheard of unheard of because it's in a cone of silence you know because it's a, yeah <laughs> <laughs> well friends there is no real ending it's just the place where you stop the recording but this podcast is always one step beyond logic so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and also be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. When I'm barren, they'll remember this day and won't be a one of them. What? Won't be a one of them can escape. That's the exact quote. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird, weird grammar. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, it won't be a one of them can escape fear me for taking this day. What? <laughs> yeah, are the Harkonnens uh, Southern? <laughs> goofy? <laughs>
when I'm barren, they'll remember this day and there won't be a one of them can escape fear of me for, it's kind of becoming Kermit. Uh, escape fear of me for, uh, because of this day. Okay. All right. Enough. 